Testament, and one that is familiar to most of us, yet as we evaluate what is going on here, as Jesus converses with this leader of the Pharisees, this wealthy aristocrat of Jerusalem who has come to him in humility to ask him questions about his spiritual life. This man who is very learned, man who is very well trained, academically qualified in all the traditions of Judaism, recognizes that this, uh, this man from Galilee, this carpenter's son, who is not the formal training, not the credentials, not the academic credentials that would be associated with a rabbi, is so knowledgeable and is so obviously uh, a representative of God because of the miracles and signs that he performs that this, this learned Jew, Nicodemus, addresses Jesus as rabbi. In this conversation, we have seen two points that have been emphasized here. Point number one, Jesus confirms the doctrine that salvation is by grace, by faith alone, in Christ alone, and it is based on a miraculous new birth, which we call regeneration. Unfortunately, since the, uh, we always see how Christian terminology gets diluted and wasted by certain groups, since the mid-70s, I've tried to avoid the use of the term born again as much as possible. With the election of Jimmy Carter as president back in 1976, you had Time magazine declare 1976 the year of the evangelical, and everybody was talking about being born again, and nobody understood what it meant. I was in Denver visiting some relatives at a party, got involved in a conversation with a man, and I knew I was putting my foot in my mouth the moment I asked him if he was born again. And he said, oh, yes, this last year I've been divorced. I've got a new wife. I've got a new job. I've moved to a new part of the country, and I'm born again. Since then, I have assiduously avoided using that particular term because the average person does not have a clue as to what it means. Regeneration has to do with the fact of being born again. has to do with the fact of a, a new birth. What is born, being, having something born indicates that something is missing, something is lacking. What is lacking? Every one of us is born with a physical body. And we have a soul, a human soul. This is the immaterial part of the body. The soul is comprised of mentality, emotion, volition, self-consciousness or self-awareness, and a conscience where our norms and standards reside. With the mentality we think, with the emotions, we have various feelings, expressions, we appreciate things and respond to things. Volition is the decider, the chooser of our soul, which tells us that we have individually responsibility for every choice, every decision we make. We cannot put it off on anyone else or on something else. Self-consciousness, when we look in the mirror, we have a personal identity, and conscience means that we know right from wrong but we cannot have a relationship with man. This is called dichotomous, two parts to man's makeup. Something is missing. When Adam sinned, when Adam fell, he lost his human spirit. The human spirit is that immaterial aspect of man's makeup which allows him to understand spiritual phenomena and to have a relationship with God. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus, deep in his soul, Nicodemus is really asking the question, Am I good enough to get into heaven? 
I follow the law. I follow all 613 commandments. I try to follow all the traditions of the rabbis. And that was, that's what Phariseeism was based on. It was based on not only the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law, but the years and years and years of accumulated traditions of the rabbis as to what those things meant. For example, the mandate in the Mosaic Law was that uh, uh, you were not to boil a kid, that is a baby goat, not a child, but you were not to boil a kid in its mother's milk. Now, the way that what the rabbis asked was, well, what exactly is going on here? How do we really apply this? And they start asking all kinds of questions related to all kinds of situations. And one tradition and interpretation built upon another until you reached a point where now, as that is applied in Israel, in Jerusalem, every single restaurant has to have two completely separate, completely equipped and furnished kitchens. In one kitchen, you have all your utensils and all of your pots that handle dairy products. Milk, cheese, anything, butter, all of that is all in one separate, distinct kitchen. The other kitchen, you have your pots and your utensils that handle meat and beef products. What they have concluded is that, that in, in, the, in the legalism, is that beef and dairy products can't ever mix. That's the application of that. They've forgotten the fact that there was a historical context in which the, this practice was intimately connected with pagan practices in the worship of Baal and the Canaanite religion. And so what, under, uh, what underlie or what, what undergirded that particular commandment was that you weren't supposed to become engaged in these practices associated with pagan religions. But that has been twisted, and you cannot go to a McDonald's, if you were to go to a McDonald's, you cannot go to a McDonald's or a Burger King in Jerusalem and get a Whopper and a milkshake. It's not kosher, folks, and you can't do it. That's where legalism goes. Just, you just lose sight of the reasons, the where, whys and wherefores of everything. And so Nicodemus is caught up in all of these traditions and all of the rabbinical teaching, and he's trying to figure out if he's really been good enough. He's really followed everything well enough to get into heaven. And Jesus just hits him right between the eyes and says, you can't see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, unless you've been born again. And Jesus continues, as we have seen in the last few weeks, to discuss this with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, after he hears this, says, well, how does this happen? What are the physical dynamics? Because he's thinking about being born a second time by entering his mother's womb. And he's serious. He's not being facetious. He just can't grasp the concept. Jesus expands the thought we saw in verse 5. Truly, truly. And this is a statement of his absolute authority. Amen, amen. Meaning this is one of the most important statements you're ever going to listen to. Nicodemus, I say to you, unless you are born, now it's not again or, or from above, anothen, it is born of water and the Spirit. And this picks up Old Testament imagery from New Covenant passages in, in places like Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, that this speaks of that birth from above, involving two aspects, cleansing and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. We see this again and again. We saw this in our first hour, and now in the second hour, so that by the time you go home for your Sunday dinner, 
you should understand that there are two of the facets of Adam's original sin is one, man had a deficit. He was stained by sin and he needed to be cleansed or forgiven and all that would do is bring him from a negative deficit back to zero. Secondly, he lacked the ability to produce positive righteousness so there needed to be the gift of perfect righteousness which is imputation which would put him in the plus column. Another terminology that is used for all of this is the doctrine of expiation, where our certificate of debt was nailed on the cross with Jesus, Colossians chapter 2. Jesus said, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So the first point here is that Jesus confirms that salvation is by grace and it comes from God and there is a miraculous new birth. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that is material, and that which is born of the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, is spirit. So the Holy Spirit creates and imparts the human spirit. Then he arrests Nicodemus with the command, stop marveling, stop sitting there and being amazed that I speak like this. You've got to make some decisions, you've got to think about this. In fact, what the underlying thought is you really ought to understand all of this. Stop marveling at that I said you must be born again. And then Jesus shifts gears in verse 8. There's a shift here. He stops talking about regeneration. And we saw this or began to look at this last week. And this is point two in terms of the introduction. The greater issue that is addressed here is the collision between the two worldviews. The worldview of Nicodemus, which is based on human systems of perception and the worldview of Jesus, which puts divine revelation as the absolute criteria for everything in life. The issue here is truth itself. Jesus knows that, first of all, he has told Nicodemus about the doctrine of regeneration, but Nicodemus understands the Old Testament, he believes the Old Testament, but he's not saved. Because the issue is not the belief or faith in historical fact as historical fact, it is having the correct interpretation of that historical fact and assigning it the correct meaning. So the issue here is not, it goes beyond the simple doctrine of regeneration, but he challenges Nicodemus' basic system of perception, his basis for ultimate appeal. How do you know something is true? I think one of the hardest issues that we all face when we're witnessing to somebody and we're explaining the gospel, and they start asking those tough questions. Well, how do you really know this is true? I mean, this person says X, and that person says Y, and you've got the Hindus and the Mormons and the Muslims and the Jehovah's Witnesses. How do you know what is truth? Then you have the skeptic who says everything's relative. That was Pontius Pilate. Jesus stands before him and says, this is the truth, and Pilate says, what is truth? There is no truth. No such thing as truth. It's all relative. We, we always get involved in these conversations with unbelievers where they ask us the tough questions that we find so difficult to answer because they really involve a, a whole framework of knowledge, don't they? Questions like, why is there evil in the world? If God is really good and he knew all of this was going to happen, why didn't he do something to prevent evil, and sin? Why does he let this happen? How can God really be good and let all this happen? And so sometimes when we witness to people, they ask tough questions. 
because they're thinking. They're wrestling with issues in life. Sometimes they like to throw those out just because they're red herrings and they don't really want to listen. But frequently, we get involved with people who are like Nicodemus, and they've thought about some things, and they're asking some questions. And what we see in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus this morning is some particularly important moves that he makes in his presentation of the gospel to Nicodemus, which help us understand how we can present the gospel a little more clearly and a little more forcefully to the unbeliever. Jesus shifts his focus here in verse 8 to the underlying system. He's going to clear out the ground and, and, and really remove Nicodemus' rationalistic grounds for his religious and philosophical position. And the way Jesus does this removes the ground, the foundation from all religious and philosophical systems throughout human history. There's always this competition in history between human viewpoint systems of perception and divine viewpoint systems. The divine viewpoint is based on faith with its object in the scriptures. Human viewpoint systems are rationalism. Rationalism has as its starting point the intellectual capacity. Rationalism says that human mind is intellectually capable of arriving at absolute truth on its own. Autonomous, independent use of human reason. That human reason alone, unaided, can arrive at truth. Or empiricism. Empiricism says that on the basis of human experience, on the basis of human observation of sense data, data in history, data in his lifetime, that man can arrive at absolute truth. Those are based on using logic. And then what I call the sort of the anti-system is mysticism. Mysticism says logic is irrelevant. I reject logic. And we're going to get there irrationally. We're just going to base our knowledge of absolutes and on truth on intuition, on our gut feeling, on our emotions. And that's where we are in our society today. We live in a culture that is dominated by mystical thought. We reject logic. We reject reason. We reject facts. We look towards how do you feel. That's the ultimate criteria for truth. Now, Jesus is going to pull the rug out from under these systems and show that, that man is not capable at arriving at absolute truth, and he does this in a very unique way. Now, one, one point I want to make is that, that one of the problems we have in our society is that religious truth, I use the term religious in quotes, religious truth is often demeaned by people. That it's, it's really not very important. Religious truth is so subjective and, and uh, it uh, just depends on people's private opinions that somehow people get the idea that religious truth is less important than scientific truth. And we live in a society and a culture that thinks about truth only in terms of scientific verifiability. And yet throughout history, if you know anything about philosophy and logic, there are different kinds of absolute truth and verification for truth systems. 
based upon logic, not based upon empiricism or rationalism. And just because uh, the truth that we're dealing with has to do with eternal life and spiritual realities does not mean it's any less significant than the kind of truth that one can touch and feel and experiment with. But yet we live in this society that discriminates against religious truth. So we need to learn how to meet these kinds of objections head on. And Jesus gives us a model for doing this. He says to Nicodemus in verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. He's sitting there on the rooftop and he takes an, an example just from his immediate environment as he hears the breeze go by as we heard the wind rushing by the last couple of days around here. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. This is the same. This is the analogy here. So is everyone who is regenerated. In other words, there's a comparison between the wind and the person who's regenerated. There's something about the wind and the regenerated person that is analogous. That's what we're going to see here. Let's do it this way. I'm going to draw a graph here on the overhead. I have our y-axis here, our vertical axis. This represents time. Our x-axis here represents space. In terms of human observation, the smallest thing that you can observe in terms of space through the unaided eye Maybe a speck of dust with a little aid or an electron, mi- electron microscope or a few other more sophisticated tools. You might extend that down to almost the molecular level. And that's the bottom limit. So we'll draw this line right here. This represents the bottom limit of human observation. We can only have direct observation of things down to a certain size. If it gets any smaller than that, there's no direct observation. That's the end. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how, how, what your IQ is or what your education. You can't have direct observation below a certain size. In the other direction, the other extreme, we have the, the largest thing we can observe personally. For example, a galaxy or the heavens out in the stars, something like this. So these are the limits of direct observation in relation to space. In relation to time, the smallest amount of time that we have direct observation of is about the wink of an eye. Just maybe a little bit less than a second, a half a second, something like that. This is the lower limit. With time-lapse photography, perhaps we can extend that a little bit and see the growth of a plant or something that happens very rapidly. We can slow it down, but it's not much less. That's the smallest end. No matter how intelligent you are, no matter what, without we, we can't go any smaller than that. Time-wise, the outer limit, we'll draw a dotted line here. This would represent our own lifetime. Direct observation would go from birth until death. But we might extend that, extend that a little bit through the testimony of others and historical observations. But beyond that, and the further back we go in time, the less historical information we have. And when we go back much beyond a couple of thousand years or probably even 500 years, the amount of data that's available to us becomes less and less and less until we get to a point where there's just no data available whatsoever and we're in the realm of pure guesswork. And speculation. So what we've described here by pointing out the lower limits and the upper limits of time and space 
is man is in a box. He's boxed in. No matter who you are, no matter how intelligent you are, you're in that box. You do not know what is outside that box. There is no way that man on his own finite abilities can get to any knowledge of what is outside that box. And wind is right on the edge of that box. Wind is a natural phenomena of turbulence. It is purely random. You cannot generate any formula that will tell you where the wind is coming from or where the wind is going. That's why uh, meteorological predictions are just based on statistical data of observation and what has happened in the past and what might happen in the future, but one never knows. If you were following the forecast on this hurricane that was down in the uh, Caribbean this last week, and at one point it had winds of up to 185 miles an hour. It was a Class 5, and they predicted that it would turn northwest and go up through Cancun, and it just became stationary and gradually died down until it was just a tropical storm and didn't go into the Yucatan Peninsula at all. So you can't come up with any kind of absolute system of prediction. Wind is just on the outer limits of human knowledge and perception. Wind is this turbulent random phenomena that to fully comprehend it and understand it would completely stress out the human mental capacity. We just can't do it. So Jesus is saying that wind is right on the edge here. It's outside the box. You can't know it. You can describe some things about it. You can describe it statistically and state some things that have happened in the past. But when it comes to fully comprehending it and understanding it, it's outside the box of human capacity to to fully understand, define, and control. In that same way as the person who's regenerate. They are outside the box. Regeneration is out here. Regeneration is an act of God. It is performed by God the Holy Spirit, and therefore you can't discover it through human systems of perception. Rationalism won't get you there. Empiricism won't get you there. Mysticism will not get you there. You cannot come up with an understanding of regeneration based on human systems of perception alone. Man is limited in his experience, he's limited in time and space, and he is locked into this epistemological box. I'm sure that's a word that may be new to some of you. It is a word that relates to the study of knowledge, epistemology. It's a branch of philosophy, and it basically explores the whole area of knowledge. How do you know what you know? What is your basis for authority? What are the systems of human perception? And this is the epistemological box that puts man in virtually a straitjacket related to human systems of perception, and these are his limitations. Wind is outside the box. By analogy, we understand that God is outside the box. Salvation is outside the box. All spiritual phenomena is outside the box. The only way man can know anything about what goes on outside the box is if someone outside the box tells him about it. Now, does that mean that what's outside the box is not knowable? Does that mean that it's not rationally comprehensible to man? Not at all. What it means is that man, on the basis of unaided reason and unassisted experience, those are important words, on the basis of unaided reason and unassisted experience, can never do anything better than an educated guess 
at what is outside the box. He knows there's something outside the box. Romans 1, 18-19 tells us that. That he knows God exists and he is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. He has God consciousness. He knows there's something or someone outside the box. But he can't tell you anything substantive about what's out there. Because the only, thing you, only way you can know anything about what is out there is, through, is if the what that is out there breaks through the box and tells you about it. So that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. This is powerful. He is telling us that when you're witnessing to someone and they're coming up with objections, what you have to do is help them understand that on, that, that on the basis of their systems of authority, they're saying on the basis of my reason, on the basis of my experience, I can arrive at absolute truth. And what we have to do is say, look, Christianity is different. You can't get there on the basis of your limited reason and experience. Someone has to tell you. And Jesus did that. He came from outside the box to speak inside the box. That's the only way we can have any truth about what's outside the box. And this just blows Nicodemus away. He is challenging Nicodemus as an unbeliever that his whole system of thought, his whole system of authority for thinking is based on, on, on shifting sand. There's no support for it whatsoever, and his whole system topples. The problem with, mo- with many people when we get involved in witnessing, and I've done this, and I'm sure you've done this, is the unbeliever wants to come and say, okay, all truth is equal, so all of a sudden we're put down at just his opinion versus our opinion. And it's like Christianity has the same basic authority. Christianity is just another view, just like any other view. And all of a sudden, all we're doing is we're arguing back and forth across the table. My opinion versus your opinion. And sometimes we just end up that way. But yeah, Jesus can do something we can't do in this passage. But we can learn something from him. Jesus does something we can't do. Jesus says, I'm speaking with my own authority. It's not just one rabbi talking to another rabbi. You see, in, in rabbinical theology at this time, that's all you had. We're getting, you know, the sad thing is we're getting that way as evangelicals. In, the, in, in rabbinical theology, you had the Old Testament law, and every rabbi interpreted it a different way. And if you read the Mishnah, you, the Mishnah will ask a question, what do we do in this situation? And then, well, Rabbi Akiba says this, and Rabbi... Halal says this, and some of them have great names. Rambam says this, and Rashi says this. And all you get is one opinion versus another opinion, and then you just come to it and you read it, and you decide who, who, which famous rabbi you're going to align yourself with. You know, we see this same thing going on in Christianity today. Well, John MacArthur says this. Chuck Swindoll says that. I read this commentary, and it said this. And I read that commentary, and it says that. The thing is, if you want to, you can go out there and you will find some pastor or some theologian who will say just about anything that you want him to say. And you can say, well, I found somebody who will, who will stroke me the way I want to be stroked. The issue is not to find somebody who supports your opinions. The issue is to find a pastor who will get into the Word of God and teach it for what it says, regardless of how it makes us feel. Because these things aren't our opinions. The Word of God is not designed to stroke us and make us feel good. 
The Word of God is designed to give us absolute truth so that we can understand reality and conform our thinking to reality. And Jesus is challenging the whole system of rabbinical authority by the way he addresses this. And that's what Nicodemus says in verse 9. Nicodemus answers him and says, How can these things be? I mean, he is just completely confused and bumfuzzled. His entire mode of thinking, his entire authority system for arriving at truth has been destroyed by Jesus. Old Testament theology was based clearly on divine viewpoint and revelation from God, but it had been reshaped by the traditions of rabbinical theology. They were looking at human tradition and human thought. Systems of rationalism, empiricism, and tradition were the final court of appeal, not God. You see, as we're going to, I'm going to try to get to this morning, things are the way they are because God says they are the way they are. They're not the way they are because they have some autonomous right to that. Genesis chapter 1. The night, Jesus separate, I mean, God separates the darkness from the light and he calls the darkness night. Why is the darkness night? Not because it has autonomous existence is night, but because God said this is what night is. Two plus two equals four, not because there is some autonomous mathematical law in the universe that God must conform himself to, but because God has said two plus two equals four, and that's the standard. Now, unbelievers can arrive at a certain level of truth, and believers can arrive at, at, can make those same observations, and there can be a certain amount of understanding there from an unbeliever. But unless you understand the facts of God's creation, as God has said that they are, you don't understand the facts of God's creation. To the degree that you reject the authority of Scripture as defining things to be what they are, to that degree you're divorced from reality. Things are what they are because God says that. And we're going to look at passages that define that very clearly. But that's the essence of what, Nicod- of what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. And G- after Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus, he's almost poking fun at him in verse 10. There's, there's just a little, I think there's a little tongue in cheek going on here. Are you the teacher of Israel with all your degrees and all your knowledge and all the respect that you have in your robes and your position on the Sanhedrin? Are you the, the teacher of Israel, which indicates that Nicodemus probably had a tremendous respect as a communicator of the Old Testament. Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? In other words, Nicodemus, these things that I'm telling you about Regeneration and being born again should have been obvious to you from your study of the Old Testament. It's not that they're hidden in the Old Testament. It's that they are there, but you are coming to the Scriptures and interpreting them with your rationalistic rabbinical glasses instead of letting the Scripture define itself for you. In other words, you are basing everything on this, these human viewpoint systems of empiricism, rationalism, or mysticism. You're basing everything on those human viewpoint systems, and you're not coming with faith in the Word of God. So Jesus addresses this 
and he says what we can't say. He says, truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen, I say to you. I'm speaking with direct authority from heaven. Now, we can't do that because we're not Jesus. But what we do in witnessing, when you, we're not, they're not competing systems on the same level. We've got the self-authenticating Word of God. And we know from Scripture that, these un, that an unbeliever is rejecting what he already knows. We don't have to convince him that God exists. That's what Romans 1, 18 and 19 says. That they know these things, it is, or it is evident to them. And we'll look at that passage eventually. And they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But Jesus appeals to the self-authenticating Word of God. He is speaking the truth. He appeals to His own authority. Now, amen, amen is a, uh, an idiomatic statement. In Greek, you don't have boldface or italics or underlining. So you would say it through the use of certain phrases. And he says, truly I say to you, singular... Notice this. I'm speaking to you as a singular, that second person singular you. I say to you, Nicodemus, we, plural. Notice the shift. The plural subject, the subject and object become plural. We, not just me, Jesus, but this would include all believers who are witnessing. And the, the you, plural, now is broadened from Nicodemus, singular, to all the unbelievers in Israel who are rejecting the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know, and we bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that if I talk to you about the things that are empirically verifiable by by you, because they're inside the box, they are things which we have seen and things which we know and the things that you that are clearly available to you from your study of the Old Testament. If I'm talking to you about those things and you don't receive my witness and you don't believe me, how will you believe me when I'm out here outside the box and I'm giving you information about spiritual things? Then he goes on, verse 12. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, what does he mean by earthly and heavenly? We have to always let the Bible define the terms. That's a very important principle of hermeneutics or interpretation. You don't get into the Bible and just say, oh, well, this must mean this and that must mean that because that's what I think it is. That's what makes, seems to make sense to me. You have to study the Scriptures and let the Scriptures give the definition for these terms. So let's look at a couple of passages that give a little illumination on earthly versus heavenly. Turn in the Old Testament to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30, and we will understand what Jesus means by earthly and heavenly. It relates to the finite limitations of human language and human knowledge. That human knowledge is limited. Proverbs 30, pick up the context in verse 3. The writer says, Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. In other words, this is clear statement that man is limited in his knowledge. He has, doesn't know wisdom, that is eternal truth, spiritual truth, 
nor do I have direct empirical knowledge of the Holy One. I'm inside the box. I do not have direct knowledge of God outside the box. And notice how the vocabulary he uses to express these limitations. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garments? See, he uses, Proverbs uses the same visual imagery, the same physical imagery that, that Jesus uses, wind and water. Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. In other words, what the writer of Proverbs is emphasizing here is as man's knowledge about even certain things in the physical universe is limited, as Jesus points out with wind, the only way you know about these things is if you go to heaven and bring back information. In other words, heavenly and earthly in this passage relates to revelatory knowledge. If it's heavenly, it hasn't been revealed yet. If it's earthly, it's that which has been revealed. We see similar terminology in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Turn with me there. Deuteronomy 30, Moses says to the Israelites, for this commandment, singular. Now, he's summarizing the entire Mosaic law when he says this commandment. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. He's summarizing the entire law. All 613 distinct mandates are being summarized here. For this commandment, which I command you today, he's been preaching a sermon. Deuteronomy is a sermon. You may not know that. But the whole book of Deuteronomy was sort of Moses' last will and testimony, his final sermon, his parting shot at the Israelites before he went up into the mountain to die. For this commandment, which I command you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven to get us, get it for us? In other words, in heaven would, would be information that hasn't been revealed yet. Unrevealed information. Heavenly knowledge is that knowledge that's not revealed to man. It's not accessible yet. Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? But the word is very near you. In other words, it's been revealed. I just spoke it to you. It's in your mouth, in your heart, that you may observe it. So heavenly knowledge is unrevealed truth. Earthly knowledge is doctrine that has been revealed. What are we talking about? We're talking about regeneration. It's a doctrine. It's in the Old Testament, Nicodemus. You ought to know about it. If I'm talking to you about earthly things... That is, revelation that's been communicated to you, that's inscripturated, that's written down in the Old Testament, and you don't understand doctrine that has already been revealed, then how should I, or why should I, tell you anything more? Why should I give you more revelation? And that's a principle throughout Scriptures. That if God gives you a little bit and you don't do anything with it, God's not going to give you any more. If God gives a certain amount of revelation to Israel and they reject that, God is not going to give more information to Israel. Nicodemus, if I've told you this much about the gospel and you've rejected that, you're not going to get anything more from God. You've got enough and you're negative. You've rejected it up to this point. You are not positive. We're not going to go forward until you accept what you've already been given 
And it's open to you. You can go back. You can use your reason. You can use empiricism. You can study the Scriptures. You see, rationalism and empiricism have to do with your starting point. Now, this is a basic principle in all logic. Here you are. You're a believer. You're witnessing to an unbeliever. This unbeliever builds his whole case on the starting point of rationalism. This is his starting point. Here you are. If you grant his starting point, you've already lost the argument before you ever begin. Because everything he builds on that, as long as he's logically consistent, he's got an airtight argument. What you have to do is wipe out his starting point. And his starting point is the validity of, of the human mind to come to absolute truth. His starting point assumption is that he can talk authoritatively of what's going on outside the box. And what you've got to show him is he can't get outside the box. He has no idea what's outside the box. And unless somebody comes from outside the box, all he's doing is giving pure speculation and guesswork and there's nothing substantive there at all. And that's what Jesus says in verse 13. Notice how this terminology is reminiscent of the terminology of Proverbs 30 and Deuteronomy 30. Jesus said, And no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And in that he is making an explicit statement of his authority to give absolute truth to Nicodemus. Now, we can't do that because we're not Jesus. But we can appeal to Scripture. And it is the Scripture that the Holy Spirit uses. Now, some people get the idea that when they're communicating the gospel to somebody, that all they have to do is just say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that because God the Holy Spirit is a sovereign executor, uh, executive of evangelism, that he'll make it clear. And that's true, but it's, a, it's an abuse also. So you're to be, we're to be involved in answering questions and helping people understand the gospel. The Holy Spirit makes it clear to them, but we answer questions. And we have to come to understand some things, and we're going to see this when we look at Second Peter, where Peter says that we are to always be ready to make a defense, to give an answer for the hope that it's in. It's not just to some people, but to everybody. We're commanded, that's one of the mandates for the spiritual life of the advancing believer, that you have to always be ready to give an answer, to explain to an unbeliever why you believe what you believe, and to be able to make an adequate defense. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have a Ph.D. in philosophy. That doesn't mean you have to know everything there is to know about history and everything else, but you, you can make it very, very simple, and, and I'm going to try to help you with some of, these, some of these things. Now, one of the biggest mistakes we get into is we think... And I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting myself here. We think that if we just know all the historical evidences and all of the um, philosophical arguments, that we can convince the unbeliever of the truth of the gospel. And that's wrong. Now, faith is always based on historical reality, and it is not anti-reason. It's based on reason. We've seen that over and over again. You believe with what? Your mind. That means it is cognitive information. It is 
It is rational information. There are specific propositions, rational propositions you believe that are necessary for salvation. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. If you believe that Jesus was a historical figure and he died on the cross, that's not enough. That's, that's more like what Nicodemus was doing. He believed that all these things happened historically in the Old Testament. But he was not interpreting them as something that was relevant to him in terms of his own spiritual life. See, facts are not neutral. We always get into this thing, okay, we're going to talk to the unbeliever, we've got historical facts and philosophical facts, and if I can just get him to recognize the validity of these facts, then we're okay. But you can talk to an unbeliever who will accept the validity of the resurrection. Okay, I believe it. You've convinced me Jesus rose from the dead. The tomb is empty. But see, I believe that the ultimate reality of the universe is pure chance. And in a universe that's ruled by evolution and pure chance where everything is random, anything can happen. So, obviously, once in a while, somebody might be resurrected and after they're dead, they rise from the dead. So that happened. But that doesn't mean anything. See, facts are never independent of an interpretation. The moment you look at a fact... You begin to interpret it. You assign it meaning and significance. And the unbeliever, you can't appeal to facts as if they're some sort of independent, raw data. Because he's already interpreted it one way, and you've interpreted it another way. And you know what I mean. Because everyone here who's been married or been a kid, and you've had some conflict with your parents or with your spouse, and something has happened, and they've said, well, no, it was this way, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And you say, no, 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 you're all messed up. It was this way. And then you get in an argument. One thing happened, and this person interprets it this way. The other person interprets it that way. That's exactly what's happening every time you witness to somebody. This unbeliever out here is interpreting those facts on the basis of a human viewpoint system of perception. And you're over here operating on divine viewpoint. And you will lose the battle at an ideological, philosophical level the moment you start treating this as if you're going, to, you're going to appeal to these facts the same way. It isn't going to happen. You've already given away the battle. You've let the other team get the ball and you're going to let them score because you think there's, you're on equal footing. You're not on equal footing. You're standing on the self-authenticating Word of God. The issue is not historical. That's nice. You need to know the evidences. That faith is based on evidence. That there, are, there were 500... How many witnesses does it take to confirm anything? It takes two. I could say unless it's DNA and people don't understand that certain things about DNA, but we won't go there. It only takes two legal witnesses. 500 people and more saw the resurrected Jesus. There's evidence, medical, physical evidence from the eyewitness account of the spear going in the side of the Lord. John says blood and water came out. Now that's just, a, he, he's talking in terms of what it looked like. And we know from science that after a person dies in crucifixion in that position, that because of the pressure of putting the diaphragm up against is that the blood separates, it coagulates and separates into uh, lymph 
and red, heat, uh, red blood cells, and this separates and collects on the diaphragm so that when a spear would be plunged up from, from the lower level, that it would pierce this sac and it would come out separated, looking like blood and water. That only happens if you're already dead. So Jesus couldn't have swooned on the cross. That's the great swoon theory, that he just passed out. And, and he, they put him in this cold, dank, humid tomb, like your basement. And he miraculously recovered and walked out of that basement three days later with no medical attention after this, this wound in his side and all this pain and everything. Well, that's just absurd. And anybody with two brain cells that connect ought to realize how absurd that is. But see, the issues here aren't intellectual. The issues here are not historical. The issues here don't have anything to do with IQ. They have to do with spiritual truth. You're talking to an unbeliever who's either positive or negative, and the ultimate, the ultimate issue here is not historical veracity. You can't appeal to some kind of neutral area because the issues aren't intellectual. The problem isn't that this guy not smart enough. The problem is he has a spiritual commitment to independence and he is suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. The issues are spiritual, not intellectual. The issues are spiritual, not philosophical. The issues are spiritual, not historical. You need that. That buttresses your case and it gives you evidence and backup data. But it's not the issue. So you don't have to worry about, I'm not smart enough, I don't have enough facts, I don't know all the history, I don't have the philosophy. All you have to do is be clear on what happened, know the essential facts of the gospel, and give it to people. Answer them to the best of your ability, and then if they're asking tough questions, try to drag them to Bible class because you know somebody who can give them the answers. We all have gone through that. I remember when I was in college and I was sitting in, in sociology classrooms and I was hearing all this garbage. And I'm after a while, because of the cumulative effect of it, and because I had never really heard anybody go point by point, categorically through all the evidences for Christianity, it began to really, really affect me. And I was saying, well, maybe it's not true. Maybe all these people have been deceived. And a friend of mine gave me a book by Josh McDowell called Evidences That Demand a Verdict. And I read that from cover to cover and never looked back. I mean, that told me for the first time that there is real data here and I don't have to put my mind in neutral or park it to be a believer. The very fact is that if you're not a Christian, what you have done is you've put your brain in neutral and you're operating against history and against reason and against philosophy and logic. So it starts with spiritual truth and ends with spiritual truth. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to have to end here. This is so important because we need to continue to talk about this because it helps us understand the dynamics of what's going on in a witnessing situation when we're trying to present the gospel to an unbeliever and the whole issue of absolute truth. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, what happens is you have a newborn baby. Here's this infant. And as it goes through its development, past the terrible twos and terrible threes, it begins to learn language, vocabulary, 
picks up a word here, picks up a word there. Usually the first word is no, because that's the one they hear all the time. And then they learn the word I, and they become self-conscious. And they become self-absorbed. And it's I, I, I. And then they realize there's also a you. And there's not only mom and dad, but there's other people and other things. And they gradually go from being self-conscious to being world-conscious. And they're aware that there's other things out there besides them. And then they go to a stage where, where did that stuff come from? And that's called God-consciousness. And you can't set an exact date on this. I've seen kids, I think, understand and respond positively to the gospel as early as two and a half to three years of age. And you know, I I know I had a friend of mine who used to teach child evangelism fellowship classes and would drag her little two-year-old daughter with her everywhere. And she always giving these kids a gospel. And one day they're driving home and her two and a half-year-old daughter says, Mommy, I want to go to heaven too. Can I trust Jesus? So, you know, it can happen very, very young. And that's what we call the age of accountability. Once that child is old enough, has the vocabulary and the thought categories to understand the gospel and recognizes that there could be, there, there's a God out there, they're going to make a decision, positive or negative. Yes, I want to know God. No, I don't. If they are positive at God consciousness, then God in His justice and fairness is going to get somebody to them to give them the gospel. Now they have another big decision. At the point of gospel hearing, they have to decide whether or not they're going to put their faith alone in Christ alone. Now they can be positive at God consciousness and then negative at gospel hearing. But if they're negative at God consciousness, God's not going to give them any more revelation. You see, they've got enough already. This is verse 19. They're going to start suppressing the truth. It's a volitional act to suppress. They will begin to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There's no atheist, is what this passage is saying. They know the truth. They are suppressing it in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within him. This is, goes against Aristotle's tabula rasa. There's no blank slate. That's a tabula rasa. Every person is born with some inherent or innate knowledge that they are a creature and there is a creator. That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, not only is there this internal, inherent, innate knowledge, but since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, not vaguely seen, not muddied, not guesswork. It's clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that what? So that they are without excuse. There's no single person, no human being on planet earth can stand before God and say, I didn't know you existed. God is saying there's at least enough evidence. It's not a lot. It doesn't have to be a lot. It has to be enough. There's enough evidence internally and externally that you knew I existed and you rejected it. You were negative at God consciousness and so you are without excuse. There is no way you can rationalize or justify your behavior 
It's an issue of your volition. And then we have a catalog of what happens to those who are negative and suppress this from verse 21 and following, which is outside the parameters of our discussion. So the issues are spiritual. They're not rational. It's not that they don't have enough information. They have enough information. It's not that they're not smart enough. But the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. It's that they're rejecting the truth. Our job as believers is to make sure the gospel is clear, be able to honestly, accurately answer whatever questions there might be. Because some of these people are like Nicodemus. They may sound negative, but they're really positive. They just have a lot of questions. They're wondering, how do I put all this together? And we have all the information. It's incredible how much information we all have. We understand salvation. We understand the angelic conflict. We understand dispensations. We understand a phenomenal amount of data. All we have to do is sit there and answer their questions. Make it simple. Don't try to blow them away with a lot of the terminology you hear at Bible class. Because they haven't heard that and they're not sure what it all means. You have to boil it down so that they can understand it in everyday, everyday language. And then make the gospel clear, and then it's up to the Holy Spirit and their volition. And just because you make it clear, just because you go through all of that and they reject it, doesn't mean you failed. It means they rejected it. See, it's not up to us to convince them of the truth. That's the role of God, the Holy Spirit. It's our job to present the gospel. That is the rare privilege that God has given us, to be the heralds of his kingdom to be witnesses, to be ambassadors. That's an appointment for every single believer. Every one of us, at the moment of salvation, was appointed an ambassador for Christ. And it's up to us to learn and develop the skills of an ambassador so that we can accurately reflect the kingdom of God and communicate the message of how to enter the kingdom of God. With our heads bowed, And our eyes closed. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to look at your word today for the clarity of the gospel, to understand that these issues are not intellectual, they're not cultural, they're not uh, philosophical, historical, scientific, they're spiritual. The issue is that Jesus Christ came to earth. He died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. He paid the penalty in full. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. And he asked Martha the very important question, do you believe this? Because that's all that's involved. It's not works. It's not good deeds. It's simply faith alone in Christ alone. Father, now we pray that you would help us to think about these things, make them clear to us as we meditate on them this week so that they can have an impact on the way we dialogue with unbelievers about the truth of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.